We'll be singing number, number 48 for those of you who want to take a songbook, but I think it's a song that most all of us know. Anywhere with Jesus, the first verse. <clears throat> Anywhere with Jesus I can safely go. Anywhere he leads me in this world below. Anywhere without dearest joys would fade. Anywhere with Jesus I am not afraid. Anywhere, anywhere, fear I cannot know. Anywhere with Jesus I can safely Will you bow with me as we go to our Father? Our Almighty God, our loving Father, we're so very thankful that you have seen it fit for us to be here this, for this lectureship. We thank you, dear God, for all these men who have so much knowledge that they impart to us. We especially thank you for those who put this uh, lectureship together and put so much work into it. We thank you, dear Lord, for ladies as they work so hard as well. Father, we at this time would ask you to look down upon the Green family and comfort them as only you can do. We understand that their son uh, had a car accident and we ask that you look down upon that situation. We ask that you be with each and every one of us, dear Lord, uh, as we go through this lectureship that we not only listen, but that we internalize it, that we take it into our hearts and into our lives and out into the worlds. These words, dear Lord, are meant to be shared. Let us not be keeping them just to ourselves, but help us to teach others. In Jesus' name. It's my privilege to introduce our next speaker. And they gave me a script to read. Um, I don't know how much of this is true, though. <laughs> I have known Denny Petrillo more or less his whole life. And I did not grow up in the church, and I owe him and Dan Owen much for helping me to see the truth and encouraging me to do the right thing and become a Christian. I cannot express adequately to either one of them uh, my gratefulness for our friendship and for their interest in my soul. And it's a great privilege to introduce Denny at this time. He's one of the premier exegetes in the Brotherhood today. His knowledge of the original languages and his ability to teach the exegetical method, quite frankly, is unparalleled. Denny is the director of this school. He holds a BA in Bible from Harding, an MA in New Testament from Harding Graduate School of Religion, and a PhD in religious adult education from the University of Nebraska. Denny has been a preacher, an author, 
Christian college teacher and one of my two best friends and appreciate him very much and I invite your attention to what he'll be discussing uh, during this hour regarding should women wear veils. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate the friendship. The, um, the terrible trio of Dan Owen and Mark Anstein and Denny Petrillo was something that I think still strikes fear in the minds of some youth ministers uh, <laughs> back in the day, but um, uh, we managed to get through it, and I think they managed to get through it <clears throat> as well. You notice that the topic is one that has to do with the text in 1 Corinthians 11, and Aaron Gallagher uh, just walked us through that particular text, and I'm peeling off a, a particular portion from that text, a question that is being addressed in that text, and it's one that uh, is worthy of our time for a number of different reasons. But because it is a part of God's revelation, that in and of itself makes it something that is worthy of our, uh, our time. Basically, when we think about what the text is saying regarding women, there are virtually three interpretations. And that is that, the, that she was praying and prophesying in the assembly itself. It's a, a position which... Uh, those that embrace this particular view will say that uh, Paul in chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, will then tell the women that the assembly is not the proper uh, place for her to do that, and she needs virtually to stop it. I'm of the view that the praying and prophesying that was being done uh, by the women that's being mentioned in Chapter 11 is in a context outside of the assembly. I believe that Paul begins talking about the assembly specifically in uh, the later part of verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 17. And then in verse 18, he talks about in the first place. Notice that, in the first place. If he'd been talking about the assembly all along, he wouldn't be saying in the first place. He'd be saying secondly or something along that line. Uh, but he says, in the first place, when you come together. Have we not been talking about when we come together? Well, I don't believe we have. I think he's been talking about something that is outside of the assembly. Now, there are some that argue that this is something that she was doing privately in her home. But it doesn't make sense in the context uh, that where a woman is being seen as defying her head. Uh, by failing to recognize and demonstrate proper submission. So to me, the most logical explanation is that she was praying and prophesying in a public forum, but not in the worship assembly. Now, in this lectureship, we've had women's sessions. We're not the first one to ever come up with this idea of having women's sessions. It's something that has been done as long as the church has existed. And there's no reason to think that the early church didn't also do uh, what we uh, do today. And that is we create environments and situations 
that are specifically for uh, women. And that could very well be what is being described here. We know from Acts 21 that Philip had four virgin daughters that were prophetesses. Well, exactly to whom did they prophesy? Well, it would not be, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, in the assembly, but it would be in some context outside of the assembly that would enable her to do that and to use the spiritual gift that she was given. So when we think about uh, the text of 1 Corinthians 11, it is important that we are recognizing that there is a problem. And the problem is that we're asking the question. This works better when you turn it on. Should women wear veils today? Now, I get this call, and it was actually prior to the lectureship last year when we were originally going to have this particular lecture given, but because the lectureship was canceled. But anyway, it was a call before uh, last year's scheduled lectureship, and the person asked me the question, so do women need to wear veils today? What, what's your take on 1 Corinthians 11? And I do, as I am prone to do, and I'm giving a heads up to the students in school right now, uh, that if you ever call and ask me a question, you better be ready for this. And that is, well, let me ask you a question first. What is the context of 1 Corinthians 11? What's really the point of what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11? Crickets. Could hear a pin drop. And finally, the caller said, you know, I don't think I know. And I said, and I was playing like Jesus did, that I'm not going to tell you <laughs> whether women should wear veils or not. You go back and study and then come back. I, I do the same thing. People will call and say, the water to wine that, that Jesus made, intoxicating or not. So what's the context of John 2? What's really going on there? I don't know. Then I'm not going to tell you. Go study. Uh, call me back. We do the same, I do the same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, literal indwelling or representative? Okay, what is the point of that particular passage and what Paul is saying about the Holy Spirit? Romans 5, Romans 8, Ephesians. What's, what's the point? Well, they don't know. And hence is our problem, I believe, in the church today is that we want to go to the problem and not understand the passage and what the passage is really teaching. And you can see a danger because if you don't understand what is really going on in John 2 when Jesus turned the water into wine, then you're going to miss the whole point because... That isn't the point of John 2. The point of John 2 is a sign that points to something greater that we're supposed to understand about Jesus. And it just so happens that John tells us the three purposes of why he recorded that particular miracle right there in the text. All right, so we, we jump to 1 Corinthians 11 and we want to know, should women wear veils today? But what really is going on here? Is this a passage 
that is designed to teach us about a particular doctrine of women wearing veils? And the answer is, of course not. That's not at all what is going on here. Well, what is going on? Look at verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to understand. Notice how Paul is laying it out right there. We should immediately recognize that language where Paul is saying, here is what you need to get. What you need to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this passage is about divine order. This passage is a passage about understanding where you fit, where I fit in the greater scheme of God's family and God's church. And so the veil is a sub-point to that greater point. Don't make the veil the point. Understand that the veil is an illustration of the point, and it just so happens to have been a problem in Corinth that is turning upside down the, the order that God has in mind. So, verse 3 is our context. Verse 3 helps us understand what is really going on. So when the guy called me and said, the thing about veils, and I said, well, tell me first, what is the context of 1 Corinthians 11? If he'd have said, verse 3, then we would have been good and we could have gone on with our discussion. But we've got to ask the right questions about what is really going on. So there are some preliminary considerations that we need to make. First of all, what is the context? If you were here last night and you heard the lecture by Dano and you understood that he was breaking things down as we were looking at the big picture of 1 Corinthians, and that was, by the way, a great title. You just never knew what it was. The big picture of 1 Corinthians is that which is recognizing various uh, problems and divisive issues that were found within the Corinthian church. And so when he gets to chapter 11, he wants to recognize them and praise them in some areas and then uh, say, I'm not going to praise you in some other areas. But when we think about understanding our roles, understanding our position in the church, that's something that is crucial and really is a, a discussion that extends for the next several chapters. Whenever you're doing exegetical work, you've got to understand the meaning of the words that are being used. One of the key principles is word studies. And so we ask the question, we must ask the question, what does the word veil mean? It's been my experience that people today do not understand the word. They don't understand the word that is being used in this particular context. Uh, we, it is a word that basically means a covering. We'll talk about this in a minute. 
and the idea of a veil as a covering. You'll notice that we've got a verb that's being used, katakalupto, as opposed to a noun, kalumna, uh, which shows that he's talking about a covering as opposed to the noun, which means a veil. Now, let me say that one more time because it's important that we grasp the idea that he's not specifically calling out a veil, doesn't use the noun at all in this text, but the idea of a covering and a covering by a veil is uh, what we're talking about here, not denying that part, but the more important part of the discussion and the words uh, that... Paul is using is the idea of a covering. Now, getting to the nitty-gritty of our discussion, this passage is not instructing women to wear veils. We'll just go ahead and jump to uh, the point and then establish the veracity of the point. No, it is not teaching that women today should be wearing veils. Okay, why not? Well, First of all, uh, it is uh, not a section even about the wearing of veils. It's a section emphasizing the principle stated in verse 3, as I mentioned just a minute ago. Just like the water to wine miracle is not designed to focus on the miracle itself, but to point to a greater truth, uh, so also is that the case here. It's not an end. It's a means to an end. It's not a... Uh, theological discussion about veils it is in fact a discussion about understanding roles within God's divine plan and as Aaron pointed out correctly as we look at the key words in the pericope it's man it's woman and it's the word head or headship and so the role of man the role of woman and the understanding of being subject to uh, their head all right, so that's what is emphasized and is obvious by the mere repetition of those words within this particular text. There is a misunderstanding of the meaning of the word that Paul uses here, katakalupto. We talk about the word. It is, in fact, a compound word. And that simply means that there are two Greek words that were joined together into one Greek word. You've got the word kalupto, which is basically the word that means a covering. And then you have a preposition, kata, that is added to the, the front of that. And what that does when you add that particular preposition to a word is it adds extra emphasis to it. So you've got a covering and then you've got something that is even more emphasized as a covering. Now let me illustrate what that means when we're talking about veils. There are some that understand the word that's being used here as something like this. Like the veils that these uh, particular women are wearing. And there are some that will wear uh, something like a doily on their head, something that's very small and, and um, just on the top or a scarf-like. Uh, and that's <clears throat> their understanding 
of the word that's being used here. But this is the meaning of the word. You know the word burqa because if you pay any attention to uh, religions like uh, the religion of Islam, uh, you see that this is what the women are in fact wearing. Now you've got the word kalupto, which means a covering. Then you've got the preposition kata, which is emphasizing the covering and making it something that is even more emphatic. When we look at lexicographers that explain this word, the basic meaning, according to Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, TDNT, is hiding or burying in the earth. Notice that in the basic meaning of the word, there is nothing revealed, which is why some scholars even go so far as to say that this particular veil would even have uh, something that would uh, kind of cover their eyes. And so there's no part of the woman's body that is visible. Bdag, which is another lexicon, uh, Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, says, in the case the text is in order, it may be translated about as follows. The covering of the clothes on the head is of such a kind that the whole face seems to be covered as with a mask. Another uh, source, Zodihati, says to cover with a veil or something which hangs down, hence to veil in the passive, to be covered, veil, to wear a veil. And then Swanson, in the Dictionary of Biblical Languages, says to cover one's head. Now, I could give you a lot more, but those suffice to prove the point that I'm trying to make. And that is that it is a covering to the extent that you're not going to even see her hair at all. It is that which is not a doily, or it is not like I illustrated just a few slides ago, where you have some kind of a white lace thing that you can still easily see the woman's head and the woman's hair. The word doesn't allow that particular meaning or definition. It is uh, that which is covering. Now, let me prove that point even more. I, I've said that the word itself doesn't mean a veil. It means a covering. Did you know that that particular word is actually used in other places in the Bible to talk about what happens with our sins. For example, if you look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 8, there the inspired writer says, love covers, there's our word, calupto, a multitude of sins. All right, love covers a multitude of sins. And then if you look at James uh, chapter 5 and verse 20, James says, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover, there's our word, a multitude of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to God taking care of my sins, I don't want a little thing put on top of it. Do you? I want my sins covered. And that's the word that's being used, and that is the word that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians 11. And so that shows us that we're not, in fact, talking 
about something that would be a white lace thing that would be on her head that would uh, still allow us to see her hair. That's not what the word means. A third point on why the passage is not instructing women to wear veils is the practice is not found in other passages. Hear me carefully on this because I don't want to be misunderstood. Uh, my point is this is our only biblical text. It's not that we need multiple verses to establish doctrine. I don't believe that. You probably don't believe that either. We don't base doctrine on whether it occurs three times or more or something uh, foolish like that. God only needs to say it once. And so I'm not making that point. My point is that we have a limited number of verses to help us understand. And this discussion is narrowed and limited to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, that point all by itself is going to help establish another point that I'm going to make in just a minute. And that is that it, it helps us point to it being a cultural uh, event rather than something that is a universal principle that is taught for women in every church, including women in 21st century churches. Now, let's go and get to that point then. Number four, women in other places did not wear veils, making this a cultural teaching. Now, people get confused about culture and what passages in the Bible are, are cultural and are not cultural. And we don't have time to do a full study of how, how we can understand something is cultural, but let me give you a basic principle about establishing culture. If there is a teaching in the Bible that you see that there are other places where that particular teaching is not followed, then that means that teaching in that one passage is cultural. Let me illustrate. Greet one another with a holy kiss, Romans 16 and verse 16. The word greet there in the Greek text is in fact an imperative. It's a command. All right. Uh, and that particular phrase occurs four times in the New Testament. But we also see in places like 3 John and Galatians 2 that people greeted in other ways. They greeted by the shaking of hands. They greeted by an oral recognition of someone else. And so the command is to greet. The way that you greet is that which can be and is culturally determined. What about the washing of feet in John 13? Well, do we see the early Christians duplicating that particular practice? Well, no. When Jesus says that you need to do like I have done to you, he's given a principle of service that we see illustrated in lots of different ways in the New Testament. So if a, a passage is teaching something, but we see that particular uh, practice being discussed done differently in other places then we know it uh, the specific is what's cultural now the command is to serve you've got to do that the command is to greet you've got to do that how that is executed is something that the new testament gives us 
a little bit of flexibility because it gives us other examples of how that command was illustrated. Now, here's my point in regard to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If, in fact, we are correct, and I know that we are on the definition of kata kalupto, then you're not going to see a woman's hair. But when you look at other passages in Scripture, you have inspired writers talking about a woman's hair. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 and 10 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair. Not with braided hair. Well, if you're wearing a katakalupti, you're wearing the veil, you're not going to see the woman's hair at all. So why even make a point about her not spending time, uh, excessive time, braiding the braiding of hair? If, in fact, the hair wasn't going to be visible. Now, here is the point then. The women in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is preaching and where 1 Timothy, the letter, is sent, they were not wearing veils in 1 Timothy and in a, a, a spiritual context and in a worship context. Uh, Paul is talking to them and he's talking about uh, their braiding of hair. What about in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. All right, so the women uh, of the dispersion in First Peter, they're also not wearing veils as the hair is discussed in both of these contexts. Now that right there teaches us a fundamental principle about culture. And that is we're looking at something that is unique and identified for the church in Corinth and the, Cor the Corinthian culture. And that is not something that is going to be or was applied in other places. So um, the passage itself is indicating that it is, in fact, a cultural teaching. Now, I'm, this is a separate point, but one additional point to uh, what I was just making with the First Timothy and First Peter example. You've got your Bibles open to First Corinthians 11, but I want you to notice something in verse 6. First Corinthians 11 and verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to, to have her hair cut off uh, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now, looking specifically at this verse, did you notice the word if? The word if. He says right there in the middle, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved, let her cover her head. What if it's not, though? What if now we are in a place, in a culture, in a location where it, this is not the case? 
the meaning of the word if then would demonstrate, well, we're not talking about a place like that then because it wouldn't apply. The use of the word if in this verse shows us that Paul is in fact talking about something that is a, a cultural thing where it might not necessarily be the case in some other place. But if it is the case here, then that's uh, the teaching that he gives needs to be applied. Let me give you a couple of quotes in this regard. J.W. McGarvey, in his Restoration Quarterly article, said this, Throughout the passage, the significance of the instruction grows out of the meaning of the veil and the meaning of the woman's being veiled and not veiled. In a society where being veiled is not one and the same thing with being shorn or shaven, it would seem that the command, let her be veiled, would not be binding. Where else would a conditional command be binding after the condition became untrue? All right, so if the condition no longer applies then the command no longer would make sense. And to maybe illustrate that today, if we see someone wearing a veil in 21st century, do we think that that represents her subjection to her husband? Uh, and does that mean in our society that a woman that doesn't have a veil on is not subject to her husband, her head in the context of 1 Corinthians 11. You see, we live in a society where the, the point doesn't fit with uh, the society in which we live. I mentioned earlier that uh, Dan Owen has a commentary on uh, 1 Corinthians, a teacher's commentary that is for sale. And um, my copy of that, uh, Dan said that it's been revised and so my page number might not be the right page. But this is what was said. The difficulty to the reader of Scripture comes in the fact that these requirements are not repeated in Paul's instructions about dress elsewhere, nor are they repeated by any of the other apostles. To be sure, the principle of modesty <clears throat> is repeated in 1 Timothy 2.9 to the Christians at Ephesus and is taught by Peter in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. In the specific application of those principles given in Corinth, that is not repeated elsewhere. This causes one to think that there may have been particular cultural or circumstantial reasons why Paul insisted on the veiling of women at Corinth. <clears throat> I believe that uh, Dan is correct in his uh, assessment of this text and the cultural application of this text. Another question that is one that I have found a lot of commentaries observe the Passover on, and that is verse 15 says that her hair is given as a covering. Now, one of the first things that we would do is we would look at the words used, and this is not the same word uh, that Paul used for covering earlier. But you notice that Paul is talking about a woman's head shaved needs a covering. And then he uses the word there that represents a veil. 
But notice that her hair, when it's shaved, then she needs a covering. She needs that kotkalupti if her hair is, her head is shaved. But then he turns right around and says in verse 15 that her hair is given to her for a covering. All right, so that when compared to verse 15 might indicate that the, the hair that God gives a woman is going to suffice to meet the larger principle of the text, and that is a way that we recognize our designed roles. God has given hair to women. It is a glory to her, as Paul is going to say, and that if a man has long hair, it's a shame uh, to him. And so the principle of roles and understanding distinctions is the principle that's being established. We've got the divine order of God, Christ, man, woman. And that divine order is that which, as far as human interaction, is something that is going to be manifest in the way that we dress and manifest in hairstyles as well, according to Paul in this chapter. And so when we think about uh, the, the point that he's making in verse 15, I ask the question, how does it relate to the overall context of discussing veils? And it seems to me that Paul is getting back to a point that he was making about verse 6. And that is, if she's going to shave her head, she needs to wear a veil. But if she's not going to shave her head, she's got hair. And that is something that God has given her as a covering. One other question, and this is always... Uh, one that uh, we navigate through carefully, but what is there anything in church history that could help us in understanding this particular text? And there actually were are a number of quotes that uh, I am not going to go through this afternoon, but it's in the book if you care uh, to read some quotes from uh, early Christian writers. But one uh, particular writer in a theological dictionary in the New Testament uh, article said this, in the Christian era, the veiling of women for worship has had a mixed history. The catacombs depict women at prayer only partially veiled, and we often find Mary and holy women depicted without covering. Veils have been regarded as obligatory for nuns and sometimes for other women workers in the church. Many women, especially Roman Catholics, will also use some covering when at worship, but there neither has been nor is a universal application of this rule. So you're not going to get confirmation from what early Christian writers have said about this. As a matter of fact, you're going to get the opposite, and that is that the women did not uniformly uh, wear veils when in worship. Now, having said all of that, and as we conclude our study this afternoon, let me say this. I know a number of Christian women that do wear veils. They are not making it a, uh, a point of fellowship. Neither are they evangelistic with their views about wearing of veils. But in their own relationship with God, they have come to the conclusion that they would like uh, to wear a veil. 
I respect them for that and will appreciate uh, almost in a, a Romans 14 context. They're doing what they're doing for the Lord. And while there might be some others that uh, don't see it the same way, uh, Paul would say they're doing it for the Lord and uh, the rest of us need to respect that. Um, it's not a divisive issue. It shouldn't be. And if it becomes uh, an issue where now it's being preached as a necessity and every woman not wearing a veil is unfaithful to God, then we've got a problem. And then we're going to have to address it that way. But if a woman in her personal walk with God feels like she wants to do that, then uh, I would support her in that. Thank you very much for your attention. I've asked one of our students, Trevor Smoot, uh, to come and lead us in a couple of verses of a song. And then uh, we're just going to go right into uh, a brief uh, presentation. So please remain seated after the song. We'll be singing the first and last verses of The Great Redeemer. <coughs> How I love the great Redeemer Who is doing so much for me With what joy I 